by Aliza Robin, and this is in honor of the yard site of her father, Gershon Henoch Ben Yosef, whose yard site is going to be tonight, the 24th of Tamaz Mez Neshama, have the greatest, greatest aliyah to the greatest of heights. And may he channel lots and lots of brachas to you for all that you need and all that you want, both in the spiritual and in the material. Much, much, much blessings. Thank you so much for that dedication. For the CD this week, um, the sponsor for the CD is our dear friend uh, Shlomo and dear friends Shlomo and Gabby Goldner. And this is in honor of their dear son, Pinchas's yard site. Uh, that is going to be tomorrow night on the 25th of Tammuz. Pinchas Elimelech Olav Shalom. May his neshama be elevated to the greatest of heights. This week, this year is the 15th yard site. May his neshama go higher and higher and higher and higher. And may he channel lots of brachas to the entire Goldner family, the children and grandchildren, to be blessed with only, only brachas and only revealed, revealed goodness, only wonderful, wonderful good things in the material and in the spiritual. Thank you so much for that dedication. Another dedication on the CD this week was by our very dear friends, the Smolyansky family. And this is in honor of a couple of yard sites in the family. Uh, we don't have the exact dates of the yard site, but they're all at the conclusion of the month of Tammuz, so sometime this week. Shmerel ben Wolf, Olav Shalom, Yisrael Pinchas ben Chaim, Yosef ben Yisrael Pinchas, and Avram ben Yitzchak, Olav Shalom. May um, they all have a great, great, great alias neshama, only higher and higher and higher, and be a melitz yesha for the family and send a lot, a lot of brachas and only good things down to all of the Smolyanskis, the Gashmias and the material and the spiritual, much, much bracha, much happiness, and much, much revealed good. And Be'ezus Hashem, uh, tonight all the dedications were yard sites, so we should have the end of all yard sites and everybody should come back over here to celebrate together in the greatest party of all time by Tchias Amesim, in which we're going to celebrate with laughter and joy forever and ever. May we get to see that now, now, now. 
thanks to all those that have dedicated. All right, this week is, first of all, we're living in very, very, very exciting times. Um, generally, the three weeks are not such an exciting time. But this year, in a sense, we're already living in exciting times. We're feeling, we're sensing, we're seeing some awesome, awesome things happening. Just today, and I get excited from the news, uh, there are things that look small, but they're huge. Huge, huge, huge. And Hashem is giving us a little glimpse already now of about what is about to happen in the world. So I woke up today to fascinating news. Um, there was a tragic event <coughs> last week, Friday, on the Har Habayis, on Temple Mount. Terrorists came in uh, with loaded weapons, and they shot at the police. Sadly, two policemen were killed. Um, uh, the Druze policemen that the Druzim have always been very, very, not just cooperative, but very, very much in assistance. And may the Druze community be blessed for all their assistance and self-sacrifice where so many of Druze soldiers and policemen and uh, have died in the protection of the land of Israel. And I'm sure that uh, Hashem is going to repay the Druze community. But in any case, sadly, two policemen were killed this Friday. And as a result of that, uh, the Israeli government decided for safety reasons to close down Temple Mount, the Harabayas, for, uh, for the Muslim prayers. And Friday it was closed. And of course, there was a big, uh, a big outcry from Jordan and from other places. How dare they close the, this very, very holy site. I saw even some uh, prime minister of uh, Turkey called it a crime against humanity because they just came in and shot people up over there. And yet, if they closed it down just till they can get order, it's a crime against humanity. But today, again, I guess everybody can say whatever they want. Now, what happened was, um, uh, for two days, they had the place shot, uh, closed down until they increased the security. What did they do? Only responsible. They put metal detectors, very strong, sophisticated metal detectors, at the entrance of the, to the Temple Mount, so that uh, no one should be able to bring any weapons, including knives, guns, or things like that, and smuggle them in to, uh, to the Harabais. <laughs> now, the, so what happened today was that uh, the Arabs, uh, the, the, the guy, the, 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 I don't even know what they call him, the ones in charge over the, over the mosque and over the prayers, they're, they're Jordanians, I think, essentially, because Jordan officially has the rights to that place, according to whatever. So in the, um, in the announcement, uh, that, so they decided that they're going to boycott because they don't like the metal detectors, which, which is really, like, really, really strange. What do you care about having metal detectors? You come in to pray. What do you need to bring metal in there? You can't, if you can't smuggle any knives, you can't smuggle any guns. It's so insane. But yet they decided that they're boycotting the Temple Mount. Thank God they boycotted. So today, the... Arabs did not go up to the Temple Mount to pray. They did their prayers outside, but not inside. Meanwhile, the Temple Mount got to breathe a little bit, which was beautiful. I'm sure it was very happy that it was able to breathe. Not only that, the beautiful thing was, there are Jews uh, that do go up on the Temple Mount. Now, I'm not getting into the halachic question whether one should go or is allowed to go. Rabbis have dealt with it, and there are poiskim that permit it, there are others that don't, 
and I'm not going to get into the question if one is permitted to go up the Temple Mount or one is not permitted to go simply because I'm ignorant in the matter. I didn't study it and I don't know. So, but however it is, there were Jews who, who went up and today an amazing thing happened. I don't know if this ever happened in history or at least not in recent history that Jews should be on the Temple Mount praying and not the Muslims. And this is like, wow, so Moshiach. The Harabayas is going to be a home of our Beis HaMikdash. It belongs to the Jewish people. Today, the Harabayas, Temple Mount. I on purpose said the best thing at the beginning. So that you can, that you, that on purpose, I couldn't hold myself back. So today, 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 the Temple Mount had Jews praying on it and no Muslims in the three weeks. To make it even better, there are very strong restrictions. To make it even so much better, there are very strong restrictions that, the, that kind of the, uh, the compromise in regards to the official um, uh, uh, behavior on the Temple Mount in which for whatever reason, because of the Arabs decided, Jews, even though they can go up on the Temple Mount, because they can't stop that, but Jews are not allowed to pray on the the Temple Mount. If a Jew is caught praying on the Temple Mount, he's arrested by the Israeli police. Because you're not allowed to pray. So they can go, but they have to be quiet. Because only Arabs are allowed to pray. Which is insane, but that's the way it is. Now every time Jewish people do go up on the Temple Mount they are accompanied by some official from the Arab... Uh, I forgot, I, I, not I forgot, I couldn't pronounce it. It's W-A-Q-F, I think, Waqf. I don't know how it's pronounced. Which is those in charge over the Harabais, over the Temple Mount. So they always send someone along with the people that are praying to make sure that they will not, they, they won't dare... Anybody will not say a prayer or bow down or whatever uh, while they're going up because, you know, it's only made for Muslims to pray. But because today the Muslims boycotted the Temple Mount because they're not happy that they're not, because they, they're not allowing, because they have metal detectors there. So because of that, the Arabs boycotted the Temple Mount. So they also boycotted and they did not allow anybody their men did not go along with the Jews who went up. So today when the Jewish group of people, the Yidden, went up on the Temple Mount, they actually prayed on the Temple Mount without anybody disturbing them. Because only Jews were on the Harabayas today and not non-Jews. That is such an amazing story. And that is showing us that we are at the time when things are changing. And again, this might be, you might say, dismiss it, it's a temporary thing. It happened just today. And who knows what's going to be tomorrow. First of all, I don't know how long the Arabs are going to boycott it. They on their own volition decided not to go up to pray without no one having to stop them. This was amazing. They themselves, so I don't know how long, but even if it's just for a day, we have to pick up on these little clues. We are being shown something from heaven. Jews wake up. It's time to get ready. We will be on the Temple Mount very, very soon with the third base Amigdash. And the beautiful thing as I see it is that the Har Abayas got to breathe today. 
just to catch a breath of fresh ear, of godly ear, of Jewish prayer, and not the, 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 what goes on there all the time. So that is very special, and that is actually the subject of tonight's class. Why did this happen during the three weeks? Generally, we know the three weeks is a time of harshness, it's a time of pain, it's a time of darkness, it's a time of suffering, it's a very, 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 very dark time. This is the time in which we are commemorating the onset of the exile, not, not, it's not, not, a, not a positive time, it's a very negative time. Yet, here we're seeing that something is happening. In the three weeks, uh, we have such a, such a bracha, such a light, in the Beis Amigdash, at the Temple Mount. So what does this mean? So we've discussed many times that the true nature of the three weeks has not yet been revealed. The true nature of the three weeks is really that this is a time of the greatest celebration, the greatest messianic light, the greatest bracha of the future is really connected to this, to this time, the three weeks. Ramam tells us that all the fast days that the Jewish people fast today in commemoration for something that has to do with destruction, the 10th of Tevis when they encircled when the Roman, when the, when the Babylonian armies encircled, laid siege on Jerusalem and Yerushalayim, or Shavasa Thomas when they breached the wall, the 17th of Thomas that we just commemorated with a fast day last week, or Tishabav when they burnt down the first and second Beis Amigdash temple. So all these fast days are going to be turned over to Yamim Toivim to celebrations. So I, I just to share with you something really interesting, I saw from the great Hasidic master. See, Hasidism. The Baal Shem Tov is already Mashiach. This is already the light of Mashiach. So Baal Shem Tov and his students saw the three weeks for what they really are, in Mashiach's light, a time of great joy. See, in actuality, we cannot behave that way with happiness and joy and celebration in the literal sense, in a complete way, because there are laws of Shulchan Aruch, of Code of Jewish Law, which restrict that behavior. But deep inside our heart, especially as we get closer and closer from year to year, we have to experience this time as a time already of great hope and great anticipation and do whatever we can, as we're going to see soon, to flip the days over to days of joy. So the Holy Rujaner said as follows, People say that when Mashiach will come, Shavasa Tammuz, the 17th of Tammuz, is going to be a big yantif. That's what it says in Rambam. Tishabav is also going to be a big yantif. And what's going to be the time in between? So the time in between is going to be Chol HaMoed. Just like we have now Chol HaMoed, which we have two days. The first day holiday, last day of the Yom Tov. In the middle it's called the weekday of the holiday, which is a holier time, a very a time of celebration and joy. So he says, the world says, that Shivasa Thomas is going to begin the great holiday, and Tisha B'av, is going to conclude the great holiday and the three weeks in between or the 19 days in between are going to be great joyous days of Chol HaMoyed. But I say they got it wrong. It's not going to work that way. Tisha B'av is going to be the first day of the holiday. The 17th of Tammuz is going to be the last day of the holiday. And all the days in between from Tisha B'av going around the whole year until Shavasa B'Tammuz is going to be Chol HaMoyed. And what is going to be the three weeks themselves? Oh, they're going to be something else totally. That's what he said. They're going to be completely on a whole different level of celebration. So the Yom Tif is going to begin on Tisha B'Av 
and end on the 17th of Tammuz. And after that is when we will really celebrate on, the, on, on, on a higher level. So, this is, so we know that this is really at the core of the time. Now let's take a look and, and try to see. Is this something new? Or is this something really etched in the very definition of the three weeks from its very onset? Now, before we explore that, I'd like to first you know, connect it to the Parsha. This week's Parsha, we read Parsha's two portions are linked together. Matos and Masai, it's Shabbos Mavorch and Chodesh Ov. We blessed the new month, a special Shabbos. It's Shabbos Chazak. We finished the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Torah. And uh, so in this double portion, Matos and Masai, um, we're going to focus today on the first one, not on both. Apashas Matos. We know what it says in the Sefer Shalaha Kadosh Ne Luchai Sabrus by Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz, one of the great, great, great Kabbalists and great, great saintly tzaddikim. So the Shalaha Kadosh writes that the three weeks, the parshiyos that we read, if you look in the content of the parsha, you can find that it connects very much these three parshiyos primarily, Matos and Masai and Devarim. You can find within them the content of the destruction of the temple. So he, however, the Shema Kaddish, points out, I think, I didn't check it up, but I think, to my best of my knowledge, of what I remember, is that he points out how you see elements of destruction, in a sense, the negativity of the three weeks in these three parashiyos. However, from the Hasidic perspective, who looks always for the light and for the essence of the joy and the happiness and the kernel of positivity that's in any dark situation, which is at the cornerstone of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, we will look at these parshios and discover the diamond, the great light that is buried in the dirt. Let's look ahead and find within the parsha, within the hardship, to find the light, to find the great beauty and the connection to this. So let's take a look. Parshas Matos deals with three subjects. If you look at the first parsha, we will read the Shabbos, Parshas Matos, three subjects. The first part of the parsha, the first portion, deals with vows. A person making a vow. Number one, the mitzvah of keeping your word. When a person makes a vow, a person is obligated to keep their word. They, should, they may not desecrate their words. Loyachel devaro, they have to keep their promise. And then it goes on, in continuation to that, to discuss various situations where vows are annulled. For example, when a woman makes a vow, her husband can annul her vow. Or a young girl makes a vow, her father can annul her vows. And that's what the main psukim are talking about, the annulment of the vows. Or anyone else has a situation with a vow, they can go to a rabbi, and the rabbi can annul the vow under certain circumstances. So that's the subject of vows, the first subject. The next subject in Parshas Matos is the war against Midian, against the Midianites, where the Midianites were the ones who brought the Jewish people to a terrible sin. They're the ones who caused Israel to sin by enticing the Jewish men and then bringing them on purpose in order to bring them to sin, to adultery, and then eventually to uh, idol worship. So God is saying, take revenge of the Midianites. The Jewish people go to war, wage war against Midian. During that war, the famous evil prophet Bilam is killed. 
But then the Torah goes on to describe at great length how the Jewish people dealt with the spoils of war. And the Torah is describing all the various preparations the, Yid, the Jewish people were required to do before they can bring the spoils into the camp and make use of them. That means, for instance, the first question was regards to purity and impurity. Since there was um, the Tumas Mace, there was a lot of dead corpses, things became Tameh. So they needed to, people needed to be sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer, the soldiers who went to war, and so on and so forth. But in addition to that, all the utensils that they picked up, pots and pans, needed to be kashered. This week's parsha, we have the laws of koshering, like we would do before Pesach, or when something becomes, if by mistake you mix milk and meat together, a pot, and you need to get the, the, the trafe out of it, so you don't have to boil it up or put it through the fire, the various different methods of koshering. That is discussed in this week's parsha. So again, how they dealt with the spoils of Midian. And, and in a continuation to that also, that how they divided the spoils between the army and the rest of the Jewish people. There were 13, uh, 12,000 men who went to war. So there was the army consisted of 12,000 men between them and their families and the rest of the Jewish people. And also a special tax that they gave to the Mishkan from the spoils of war, a special tax that they gave to the Holy Temple. Okay? That's the second subject in Parshas Matos. Now we go to the third subject. The third subject in Parshas Matos is there are two tribes from amongst the twelve tribes that approach Moshe. They are the tribe of God and the tribe of Reuven. They're joined along with another half a tribe of Shevet Menashe. And they come to Moshe with a request. They say, the Jewish people had just concluded the conquest of the two gi- lands of the two giants, Sichon and Og. And two weeks ago in the Torah portion we read, Pasha's Chukas, how they defeated these two giants and their armies, and they took possession of their land. This land was not supposed to be part of the land of Israel initially according to the plan. The land of Israel is across the Jordan. This is on the other side of the Jordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan. The, the land of Israel was to the west of the Jordan. Now, being that they had conquered this land, the tribes of Reuven and Gad came to Moshe, and they requested that instead of them going into the land to divide the, the land of Israel together with all the other tribes, let nine tribes go across and divide Israel. They're willing to forfeit their portion in the land of Israel. They feel they have enough place on this side of the Jordan to settle down, let this be their land of Israel. Kind of let's include the western, the eastern side of the Jordan also to be part of, I think it's part of the Golan Heights today, which is that area. So they said that should be part of the land of Israel. The reason why they requested it was because this was a land of very, very, very good pasture. And they had a lot of sheep. So they said to Moshe, we want to have this part of the Yardin. Moshe Rabbeinu first gets very upset at them and lets them hear it. He, he, he suspects them that the reason they don't want to go into the land of Israel is because they're afraid of war. Because they're afraid of... And they're repeating the same mistake that their grandparents did, their fathers did, when the Maraglam, 40 years earlier, when the spies went in 
And this caused the Jewish people to stall and remain in the desert for an extra 40 years. So Moshe Rabbeinu lets them have it. And he says, your brothers will go to war and you're going to sit over here and party and set up and, and, and have a good time when they're fighting. So in the end they said, no, we never intended that. It's not because we don't want to fight, we just want to stay on the side. So Moshe makes a condition with them that if they're willing to join along with the troops and fight during the entire conquest of the land of Israel, then they will be able to come back and give them this portion. This is the story in which Parshas Matos concludes with. So we really have three stories. Now we're going to see how these three stories really emphasize and bring forth and connect to the essence of the three weeks. So to understand all of this, let's take a look at um, the Haftorah of last week. It's really the Haftorah of this week, which is Parshas Matos. But since Matos and Masse are together... This week we're going to read the Haftorah of the second Torah portion, which is Masai. The Haftorah of the first one, Pashas Matos, we read this past Shabbos, Pashas Pinchas, we read the Haftorah of Matos because this is the first of the three Haftorah portions of Navi that deal with prophecies about the destruction. They're called the three of, of punishment, Perinusa, predictions of trouble that are coming up to befall the Jewish people. So in this Haftorah, there is, it begins with Hashem talking to Yermio Hanavi. Hashem is speaking to Yermio, and He's telling him that He's appointing him as a prophet to prophesize for the Jewish people. And He's basically, and He's called Yermio because Yermio means bitter, because He's going to be the one who's going to bring us the bitter prophecies of destruction. So we know that Yermio was the one who suffered the brunt of, of the suffering. He was there by the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. He was the one who wrote Echa and the like. So now, Yirmiyo. So here we read the first beginning, the opening verses of Yirmiyo. Over here it is, Hashem shows him a vision. And in the vision that He shows him, Hashem, the word of God was to him saying, What do you see? He asked him, what do you see? And he said, he sees it, shows him a vision. Makel shaked ani roe. I see a stick from a almond tree. A stick, makel, a stick. Meaning, he didn't see a branch that you can look like. It was a stick. But when he observed it, we'll see soon. He notices that this is from a almond wood, an almond tree wood. Okay. Hashem Hashem says to me, you, you looked well. You saw well. Radak says, you examined it carefully to see that it's from an almond tree. Because it's hard to notice that. It's just a piece of wood. It's a staff. It's a stick. He says, you looked well that you noticed that it's from an a, a almond tree. Because the reason why I'm using an almond is because I am very diligent. The prophecy that I'm going to give you now, that I'm going to tell you about next, is something that I am diligent and the word shkedim comes from the word diligence. Shaked means, same word as shkedim. Shkedim means almonds. And I am diligent to bring about these punishments. Don't think that you have a lot of time. Don't think that we're talking about something that's going to happen in a hundred years from now. Meanwhile, we can continue sinning and defiling the land of Israel. It's not going to happen. God says, I mean business. I'm very diligent in making this happen. Which means it's going to happen swiftly. Now, Rashi explains over here. What's the relationship with an almond besides the fact that the word shokade is the same word as shkedim? 
But there, in Hebrew, there's always a deeper connection. So what's the connection? Why are almonds called shkedim? Which shkedim means diligence. And the answer is because it's the fruit that is the most diligent in its growth. Shkedim grows the quickest from all other fruits. Almonds, from when they begin to flower until the fruit is finished, 21 days. So this is very, very quick. So Hashem is telling your oh, I mean business. I am bringing the punishments upon the land swiftly. That is the theme, that's the idea. However, now, when you take a look further, Rashi brings another element. He says, Umedrish Agada, and the Medrish says that it's not just diligence that it grows quicker than all other trees, but Rashi brings the reason that there's more meaning to it being an almond, because how long does the almond take? An almond takes 21 days for it, from its beginning to its completion. So this is also hinting to the 21 days of the three weeks. From the 17th of Tammuz, in which we begin our period of mourning, to Tishabov, in which we conclude our period of mourning, 21 days. So that's why Hashem is basically holding up this almond stick, and He's showing them a stick of 21 days. 21 days of punishment, 21 days of beating, 21 days of hardship. Be aware of these 21 days of horror that are about to come. And it's coming swiftly, 21 days. That's the way everybody learns this Rashi from the beginning of time. Now this Rashi, Rashi says it's a medrash. Where is the medrash? The medrash is in the introduction to Eicha. The medrash in Psichta of Eicha. It's also in Koheles. And it's also in the Jerusalem Talmud. In three places we have this statement which talks about this makal shaked about the almond Three, and the symbol behind it, it brings it in the name of Rebbe Lazar. Rebbe Lazar says, why shkedim? What's the significance of these almonds? The shkedim are saying, it's 21 days. There's 21 days of punishment, which are from the 17th of Tammuz until Tisha B'av. Now, that's the way again, the simple meaning of it. How, but now, let's go a little deeper. We're going to really look into where shkedim are. What are shkedim? So, let's investigate. Shkedim are almonds. There is a Mishnah in Mesechtes Maisros. In, in, uh, the, in the first parak of Mesechtes Maisros, Maisor is, is dealing with tithing. The same Mishnah is also in Mesechtes Chulin. In Chulin, the Mishnah is in Dav Chav Hei Amit Beis. Page 25 on the second side. It's the same Mishnah. It's both in Mesechtas Maiser and also Mesechtas Chulin. And over there it talks about that there are two types of almonds. There are bitter almonds and there are sweet almonds. Two kinds of almonds. And the Mishnah is saying that when you tithe the sweet almonds, those, the sweet almonds that are obligated to be tithed, you're exempt to tithing the bitter ones. And at the time that you're obligated to tithe the bitter ones, you're exempt from doing the sweet ones. What does that mean? So the Mepharshim so explain that those almonds that are called the bitter ones, how does it work? Why are they, well, I mean, they're bitter, they're bitter almonds, I mean, it's not edible, but it's only not edible when it's completed. At the end of the 21 days, these almonds are very bitter. But when they start 
if you, if you crack open the almond prematurely and you take out the fruit, the almonds, when they're still young, maybe 10, 15 days into their process, they're sweet. So they begin sweetly, they begin as sweet fruit, and they become bitter at the conclusion. The sweet almonds are the opposite. They are very bitter when they're young, right? When they're not yet fully developed. But as they develop at the conclusion of the 21 days, they are sweet. So we have two opposite kinds of almonds. There are sweet almonds that begin sweet and turn bitter. And there are bitter almonds that start off bitter and turn, and turn sweet. And so, by the way, not in, in Rashi it just says about the, about the sweet almond, almonds. It doesn't say that they're bitter when they're young. Rashi says that just people don't eat them when they're, not, when they're young. But Rabbeinu Gershom, who's another from the Rishonim, Pirish over here, says clearly that the almonds that are considered sweet almonds, they begin and they start off as bitter almonds, and then they become sweet. So the Sefer Tzofnas Paneach, who is a Sefer from Rabbi Yosef Rosen, the famed Rogichover Goyen, the great genius of geniuses, the Rogichover. So he said that um, in his Pirish on the Haftorah, in Parshas Matos, you can look it up in Safnas Paneah. He says that since you have these two almonds, he, descri- he explains that the real meaning of Shkedim, when the Torah says Shkedim, Shkedim are the bitter ones that become sweet. Not the sweet ones that become bitter, that are sweet when they're still at the beginning and then they become bitter. Because he says those, and he proves it from Atosvos, those are called Luzim. Luzim is, uh, luz is a type of, is also a, a nut, it's an almond. But what kind of almond is it? It's the bitter almonds, which means that initially they're sweet and then they become bitter. But shkedim, the meaning of shkedim, which are the, uh, uh, what we call almonds, these are the, su- the bitter ones that become sweet. And therefore he explains, the Rugged Shavar explains, that's why this was a sign for the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. Because we have to look at the intention of the destruction. The purpose of the destruction. Hashem destroyed the Beis Amigdash for a purpose, for a positive purpose. To cleanse the Jewish people. We know that had Hashem not destroyed the Beis Amigdash, He would have had to destroy the Jewish people. He destroyed the Jewish people, He destroyed the Beis Amigdash. Instead He let out His wrath like the Gemara says, God let out His wrath on bricks and stones and not, or stones and wood, and not on the people. Which means, and ultimately through the destruction, what happens? Through the destruction we get what? In the end, we're purified. So it brings slicha mechila kapara. it brings cleansing, uh, 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 cleansing and purification to the Jewish people. And therefore it's a good... So the idea is, in the end, it's sweet. That's what the rugged shover says. So now, to take that further, let's work on that theme, and let's take that theme further, comes out that the theme, the entire idea of these three weeks, 
which you begin again. What? How do we? How do we? How does God introduce the entire three weeks? In order to understand something truthfully, we have to always look at the very beginning, because in the beginning of something, the purpose is very felt. At the beginning and at the end. Sometimes in the middle you get confused. You don't see what the person is doing. But if you're there at the very beginning when the person's starting something, then the purpose is very, person is very focused. So we want to understand the, the nature of these three weeks. We have to look at the very beginning. These three weeks began as a prophecy by Yermio. And in that prophecy, what did he see? He saw almonds. That's what Hashem showed, not almonds. He showed him a stick from an almond tree. Oh, that means that that defines. The three weeks are defined by the almonds. And as we said before, what kind of almonds are we talking about? There are two kinds of almonds. There are almonds that keep on continuing to get bitter and bitter and bitter. And there are almonds, almonds shade them that get sweeter and sweeter. And which are the ones that the Navi saw? What kind of stick did he see? He saw the staff, the stick from an almond tree in which the almonds that are, that are bitter become sweet at the end of 21 days. What does that mean? That is telling you that the content of the three weeks is taking something bitter and making it sweet. The whole idea of these three weeks is not suffering, pain, horror, destruction, punishment, and who knows what. The idea of these three weeks is to make to convert bitterness to sweetness. That's its content, that's its essence, that's its soul. As we said before from Rambam, the purpose and the, from the very, it's not like later after we've done our time and our suffering and our pain and we've done tshuva, God will come and will flip over these three weeks to be days of celebration and days of holidays. No, from its very inception and from the way it was shown to Yermio. And I remember when Yermio looked at it, Hashem said to him, Hey, taftolirois, you're looking good. You see? You can look, but you can look superficially. Don't look superficially. Look deep. And Hashem says to, to Yermio, you've seen deep. Hey, Tafta leaders, what should you see? You should see the real panemius of what these three weeks are. Their very definition is converting a bitter entity and making it sweet. That's the definition. It's interesting, the Zohar says, in Shemos, the Zohar says too that we find the word shakeid for good and for bad. Tochazi, and the Zohar says, Shkedim, when you have shkedim, menoin meririn, sometimes they're bitter, umenoin mesikin, and sometimes they're sweet. Vidamiza islain, and they're showing something. The fact that there are bitter ones and sweet ones. Ismare de dina kashia, the ismare de shirusa. There are ones of harsh judgment, and then there are ones that bring about heter, permission, shirusa, whatever. Avol, however, the Zohar says, Wherever you have, however, shakeid, shkedim, almonds in the Torah, chazina the dina have, we always see them always associated with judgment. Every time, they're always with judgment. So, what is the, and the Zohar brings two examples the story of Yermio, and also by Aaron, when Aaron, when Aaron had a conflict, 
and they, they, they contested, Korach contested Aaron's kahuna, his priestlyhood, Hashem said they should take all the staffs and put it in the Holy of Holies, and they came out and they brought out, and it was, and he turned in, and, and, and his, his, his uh, staff blossomed with almonds. So the Zohar says, you see everywhere it's judgment. But hold it, you think about it. I understand the one from Yermio is judgment, but one from Aranako, and it proved, it validated the kahuna, why is it judgment? And the answer is over there too. We're, we were dealing over there as well with a bitter situation. Jewish people contested God. There was confusion, there was questions, there was, an, there was a, a, a machlokes, a, a rebellion against Moshe, against, there wasn't clarity, there was a darkness. And what did the Shkedim come to do? It took, the, it, it took a dark situation and clarified it. And as a result of that story, Aaron's priestlyhood will never be contested again. Aaron, then Hashem gave him, gave to Shevet Levi and to Aaron all the 24 presents to further validate and endorse him. Meaning Aaron as a Kohen became much stronger. From what? From the contestment, from the challenge itself. So in other words, Shkedim are not, are not an indication. When you see almonds, it's not an indication that just nice, wonderful, happy times are coming. Shkedim means you're up against a challenge. You're up against something difficult and something hard. But what's going to happen over here is that this hardship and this bitterness and this very, very, very difficult situation, if you're going to see it through, eventually what? You're going to turn this bitterness into sweetness, into goodness. And that's the whole point of it. That's what shkedim are. That's what they are at the essence. If this is the case, and this is the core of the three weeks and of shkedim, so now we can also look a little deeper and see something else. When Yermio was shown this vision, it's interesting, Hashem didn't show him almonds. Hashem didn't tell him, open your hands and let me pour a bunch of delicious roasted, salty roasted almonds into your hands. That's not what he told him. Or just almonds. He didn't even show him a branch with almonds. He showed him a stick. A makel, a stick. The Mitsudais um, in the parsha says, the Mitsudais, uh, uh, one of the Mepharshim, on the, on the Haftorah, on the thing, says about the almonds. Matam ilon, it's a staff from a tree, shegedelem boishkedem. It's a tree that almonds grow on, but he didn't show him the almonds. The Radak says it even stronger, I told you earlier. He saw a stick without, without uh, leaves. And without flowers. Nothing. He saw just a plain stick. He looked carefully in the prophecy and he noticed that it's from Shkedim. And Hashem said to him, I taft the leaders. But the question is why? Why is Hashem showing him a branch? If he wants, if the message is the diligence and the swiftness that is associated with the Shkedim and the 21 days that are associated with the Shkedim, with these almonds, show him the almonds. Why is he not showing him the almonds? To the point that he has to deduce. Now one can answer, there's another message over here. Hashem was trying to give him the message of a stick. There is, when you see a stick, what does a stick mean? Kids in classrooms always knew. Not today's days, because today's days we think we're treat the kids like very, very special because we're living already in the days of Mashiach and we don't need any more of these harsh. But you know, the good old days when I was a kid, the Rebbe had a stick and all you needed to do was you had to pick it up and bang on the table. Everybody would jump. We knew he means business. 
this thick was, you saw by Bilam, Bilam used a makel, Torah used the word makel, to hit the donkey. Right? So the makel represents a, 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 a beating stick. So God is holding up the makel, the stick, so that he wants to show that we're talking about some kind of a beating, some kind of a hardship that's coming. <laughs> that would, could, be, could be the explanation. Problem is, however, that was not the main message of the first vision that he had. This vision in this prophecy, when God tells now, you see, when Hashem interprets the vision, Hashem doesn't tell him anything about troubles coming. He has a second vision for that. And the next vision that immediately follows is he sees a steaming pot coming from the north. And he asks him, and he says, what do you see? He says, I see a steaming pot. So Hashem says, the troubles are going to come from the north, from Iraq, from Bavel, uh, from Nebuchadnezzar, came from the north. So that was, the second vision was the trouble. The first vision, all Hashem wanted to show him was, I want you to realize that I mean business, and I'm now very diligent at making this happen fast. If that's the case, then what he should have seen was the shkedim, the almonds, at least the process of the almonds growing, which is he should have seen a branch with leaves and flowers or whatever, and then the almonds. So you can see it. Why is he showing in Dafka a stick? Which one does the stick have to do with it? And then from the earth he has to deduce and look well and realize it's Shkedim. But here too there's something very deep. And the message is very deep. Hashem is basically telling him as follows. What's the purpose of these three weeks? We know the job of the three weeks. What's the objective? The objective of the three weeks is to convert darkness to light, bitterness to sweetness. It's shkedim. It's all about taking something bitter that's not edible and making it delicious. Yes. That's what, the, that's what you're going to do. But why? Why do we need that? Why do we need to start? Why? See, it's not like an accident happened and God found a bunch of bitterness in this world and he says, you know what, guys, go clean it up. God initially created bitterness. He created darkness. Even though we were the ones who made the mess, going back to the tree of knowledge, we were the ones who made the mess to begin with, but God created the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden with the possibility to eat it with a snake who was marching around and trying to get everybody to eat from the forbidden tree. So if Hashem set it up that way, especially if we take it into consideration what the Medrash says that God was the one who really kind of orchestrated and made it happen. And he's just blaming us. So then why? Why? Who needs this bitterness to convert? There shouldn't be bitterness in the first place. We won't have to convert it to sweetness. And the answer is, the answer to that, God is showing it to him with a makal, with a stick. We've already discussed in earlier classes, in earlier years, when we take this, the name of this week's parsha is matestik. Matos means stick, but really matos means tribes. Vaidaber Moshe, Moshe spoke, El Rashe Hamatos to the heads of the tribe. Now, this that the Jewish people are called tribes in Hebrew, Mata, is something, a phenomenon that begins mainly, I think, in Sefer Bamidbar. Earlier in the Torah, when we speak about the tribes, especially way back in the days of Yaakov Avinu, the tribes are called Shvatim, Shifteka Shvatim. Now let's analyze these two names. We've discussed this already in earlier classes. Shvatim versus Mate. What is the connection? What, what does it mean? Shevet is a branch. Mate is also a stick. A stick is a branch. 
A stick comes from a branch. But what's the difference between a shavit and a mate? A shavit is a soft, moist branch that's still connected to the tree. So it's softer, pliable, movable. It has the moisture from the tree. A mata is a stick. Or a shavit can also be a branch right after you cut it off from the tree where it is still noticeable that it is a branch. You can still see that it is a branch and it came from the tree. A mata is when you let that branch dry out for a long time. It becomes very, very, very hard. and It becomes stiff, rigid, hard wood. Then you can make a good club out of it, a policeman club, a good stick. So the stick is made only when you can't see it anymore, it's branchiness, that it's a branch and it ever belonged to the place. We can understand why the Jewish people are called branches, because the 12 tribes, all of us, are all branches from this godly tree, Eitzachayim, we might say, the tree of life, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, they're like the, 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 the trunk of the tree, the essence of this tree, and we are branches of that. We branch off into all directions to draw and bring life to the world, godly light into the world. That's the branches of all, the, all of Israel. But why are we also called Shevet and Mate? Let's be called Shvatim. Why do we find that only in Bamidbar do we start talking about the Jewish people as Mate? So the answer to that is, says the Shnezalman of Liadi, the Balatanya, I always saw this teaching but I never looked up the source. It's phenomenal. He discusses, we're talking about two levels of neshamas, two levels of souls. There is the neshamas as they are in Gan Eden, very, very, very close to their source. Therefore, the moisture of the source, of the godly light that's still coming from the source, is felt in the neshama, and they're attached to the, to the tree trunk, to the, to, to, its, to the source. They're deriving uh, uh, life from the source in the ground, and the source in the ground would be God. And that flow of energy is flowing into our souls, to every fiber of our being, in which we're enthusing, enthused with godliness, sense Hashem, that's Shevet. Mate is when the neshama gets uprooted from its source, and it gets far-flung, and thrown in far, far away, down, 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 into a body then it becomes a mata because again it's the same branch but uprooted and when the person when a neshama goes into a body it becomes stiff and rigid and self-centered you hear the idea that's the idea that it's 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 rigid it's self-centered it only knows it's so stuck up in itself it won't bend that's what happens when our neshama comes into a body because we become inserted we become in, we, we, our souls are, are entangled in ego, and we become stubborn. We come up, we call Amkshe Oref. We don't want to listen always. We only want what we want. And that's not what a neshama is. A neshama is totally nullified to God. A neshama is the most humblest of all beings. And now the neshama goes into a body, becomes stiff and hard and rebellious and obnoxious. So why? So he says, <laughs> why does Hashem take a shave it? and rip it out of its source, and put, make it into a mata, into a hard stick. So he says, I'm just going to use the leaves of the Yedua. It says, When the neshama lekis kishuhu beguf, hagashmi in the physical body, miskashem es mo'oid, becomes very physical, va'avas Hashem, ayiras Hashem, u'betachlis hagasis. And even when it fears God, and even when it loves God, it's so coarse. 
But mechoymer aguf, because of the coarseness of the body. Veniran, it appears kemufrad, liyesh. It appears to be an entity separated. Vedavavif neyatsubayin, an entity onto its own. But he says, what's the point of it? Just so beautiful. I mean, this idea I spoke so many times, but the way it's written in this Mimer got me very excited. But we know, that the tshuva and good deeds, repentance and good deeds that an Hashama does in this world is much greater than all of its life in the world to come, which means all of its nurture that it got from the tree of life when it was up there in heaven doesn't come close to the Neshama's mitzvahs that it does down here. And Bali Tshuva are greater than Sadiqim. Penitents are greater than those that are perfectly righteous. He explained that all the Nishamas in heaven are all Sadiqim because they're attached to their source. But when the Nishamas, however, come down, how can it be? He asked the question, when they come down over here, they will be greater than they were before. Achinian, who? The answer is the Niskar Bezoar, it's stated in Zoar al Bali Tshuva about. Penitents, people that are doing tshuva, the moshchen lei bechei leyatir. They pull God, the moshchen lei, they pull God with added vigor and intensity. They're much greater than tzaddikim. True, we find ourselves in an animal soul that's all over the place. Our animal soul is pulling us in every direction. Everything but to serve Hashem. Every distraction, every desire, every... Every, every, every craving, every, every passion, every desire that in all directions, not to serve Hashem, fine. But when we can yank our animal soul and turn around to do a mitzvah and to serve Hashem and primarily, then we have a certain intensity in our service that the neshamists don't have in heaven. Ubir Adavar, and just want to read these words. It says in the Pasuk, Vayetzaku El Hashem, they cry out to God. Crying out comes from bitterness. Because there is something that is irking me. Something that is standing in my way. Something that's blocking me. Something that's interfering with me. That's when, when, you, when, you, when you really, really, really want something and you can't have it because you're being blocked. So that's when you cry out in frustration. And he says, When the godly soul, When the godly soul gets trapped in the darkness, in the, in the coarseness of the lusts of this world, nothing that bad, he's not talking about a big sin. Like eating, from the Alter Rebbe's perspective, from Shneer Zalman of Liadi, like eating is horrible. Why? Because of the coarseness of the food, the body becomes very, 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 very corporal. The body becomes very dense. And it blocks the light of the soul to the point where a person appears to be like a cow, literally like an animal. That a person becomes his life, his or her life, become all about obsessing over material pleasures, physical things. The nishkach mi'itoy, the nishamas totally forgets, oire the godly light, lidoveik pa'ashem echod, to cleave in Hashem echod, in one God. Because of the coarseness of the body, from the food, the body, the godly light becomes so concealed. Vaz, hear these words, this is what got me in the first place. Vaz yitzako oire lekim metoichachoy shechagas. Then, 
the godly light, the spark of your neshama cries out from the midst of that dense darkness. Bimar nefesh ma'oid in great bitterness. It's like trapped. It's two opposites, like fire and water. You cry out to Hashem with great bitterness. The godly soul feels that they're being that she's being tortured. The darkness of the of the body from the food that he ate. It's all like a, literally like an animal. Oh, but he says an amazing thing. What's helping the neshama cry? What's helping the neshama cry out to God and say, I can't bear this. Take me, get me back close to you. I can't stand this, this darkness that I'm in. He says, amazing thing. Part of that tshuva that the neshama is experiencing is coming from the very food itself that you ate. Because in the food, there's a mixture of good and bad. So the bad of the food, which is coming from the eight sadas that has bad and good, the bad of the food coarsens, thickens, makes you less godly sensitive, less aware of Hashem, increases one's appetite and, and, and obsession with the, the, the ego, with the material physical reality. That's the darkness of the food. But since in the food there is also a spark of holiness and godliness that's there, the neshama from the midst of its misery picks up on that spark. And he explains later, which I don't have time to go into right now, that spark comes from the infinite, infinite source, higher than the, than the entire world order of now, but from the worlds of chaos, where God's light was infinite. And that sets a fire in the soul. And again, the soul is frustrated, but the soul needs something to spark that frustration. What sparks that frustration is the divine spark that's in the food that ignites the soul's bitterness, that the soul cries out with an infinite desire to yearn to connect Hashem. That's the Balchuva coming back higher than the tzaddik. And he says, guess what? It's worth becoming a dry stick for that. It's worth becoming a dry stick for that. Because the firmness and the strength and the vigor and the intensity What's, the, what's, the, what's one of the quality the stick has over the branch? The branch isn't firm. It's soft. So it's weak in a sense. The, the stick represents firmness, strength, power. The ultimate power the Jew gets is when he's disconnected and in his disconnection he wants to bridge the gap of that disconnection. He hardens up. This is what it says in... In, in the Mimer from the Alter Rebbe from the year Tafkuf Samach Beis. It's not in Torah or Lakuti Torah. It's in Tafkuf Samach Beis, Memorah Admarazok. The Lubavitcher Rebbe takes the idea and applies it in general to the entire idea of Golos. And he explains that during the time when we're not in Golos, when we are, the Jewish people are living in the land of Israel. See, the, the Balatanya is talking about the Nisham in heaven and the Nisham on earth. But then the Lubavitcher Rebbe is talking about the the, the, the Jewish people, when they're in Eretz Yisrael, have a Beis Amigdash, 
You're like branches. You're still plugged into your source. Beis Amigdash was a place of gilu yolukus, godly revelation. You can connect. You can feel the juices flowing of spirituality are flowing in the soul when you watch the ten miracles. When you heard the Levites singing, it lifted our neshamas. It raised us up to such high experiences, to such loftiness. Then we go into exile. We don't see anymore the miracles and the wonders. We're totally blocked. We're totally obscured. We don't see anything. We're in the darkness. But as a result of the darkness itself, in order to be a Jew, as I mentioned so many times, in the Gullus, you need to become tough and hard. You need to really, really dig deep into your soul to be strong, 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 strong. Because you have nothing to rely on but on yourself. You need to dig into the rock-solid Mesiras Nefesh, to the rock-solid stubbornness of the Neshama. So on the one hand, yes, the animal soul is very stubborn. The body is very stubborn. But your neshama is also very stubborn. He's also not a little kid to mess with. When the neshama gets blocked from all directions, it has no other choice but to get tough. It's like a kid when he's away from home in camp, toughens up. Especially if he has a couple of bullies that bully them around. So that causes a child to toughen up. We in the exile are bullied around for the last 2,000 years. And we're amongst the 70 bullies. And they bullied us and bullied us and bullied us. And guess what? We toughened up. We're a tough people these days. We haven't been this way when we were there. We were too idle, too refined. Now we became tough. And that toughness and that firmness, that toughness and that firmness was worth it because it really brings out the true strength of the neshama. And here's the idea. Dafka, this strength of being a makal and being a stick, gives us the ability to beat the darkness, to overcome the darkness, and even more the ultimate feat to transform the gullus itself, the darkness itself, the challenging forces itself, the nations were in themselves, all these aspects, and convert them into powers that assist in holiness. They too become part of Kedusha. They're not against Kedusha. That's the ultimate. But we can do that if we are soft and pliable. We can only do that when we become rock solid and tough in exile. So here's the secret. In order to have shkedim, what are shkedim? What are the almonds? In order to have shkedim, what are the shkedim? What are the almonds? The almonds is the power in 21 days to transform what? To transform darkness to light, bitterness to sweetness. You can only do that when you are a makal, when your heart stiff and strong, and you've reached into the deepest core of your neshama, then you have the power to convert every dark situation. And then we're not a pushover anymore. Then we are strong and we can face every challenge and take that very, very, very obstacle and challenge and convert it into a positive thing. So when the Ebershter wants to show Yirmiyohu the gullus, here's the thing. You see how Hasidus changes everything. Take a look why without Hasidus we can't have Mashiach. We have zero. That's why it's so important that we should all, everybody, everybody in the community, as far as you can spread the word, grab a Hasidic book and learn. Without this, we're blind. We don't see anything. Because you can have a three weeks of darkness, of sadness, and all you concentrate the whole time is just about reading Holocaust and sad, dark stories. I'm not saying it's not, it's important to know the past, but just to be totally marinating in gloom and in darkness and in depression and to sadness. 
That's not what it's about because take a look. You can look a look at the stick. I can give, I can guarantee you a non-Hasidic rabbi can give a drasha and say, what was the stick? God held a stick. I'm going to beat you and I'm going to beat you quickly. Three weeks of beating. Comes Hasidus and Hasidus says, what is the Abish to saying? I want to make you into a stubborn Jew. I want to make you into a strong, powerful Jew that you will be able to confront every darkness and every bitterness and convert that into light. And that's what the exile is. It's time to become strong. I'm going to make you into a makel. I'm going to make you into a stick. That's what the three weeks are. So what's the parsha that we read? What's the name of the parsha? The name of the parsha of the three weeks is matos. Mata means a staff, a strong, firm staff, which we become in Golos. And what's the subject of the parsha? Now let's go back to the three subjects that we learned. What do you accomplish when you're a stick and you're firm and you're hard? You can switch the bitter, the bitter almonds into sweet ones. You can do the work of shkedim. Oh, now let's take a look at the Parsha and see how the theme of the Parsha is switching bitterness to light. We begin with the vows. We'll do this very quickly. The vows, the Torah has a very interesting um, contradictory opinion about vows. On the one hand, vows are looked as a very special thing. The Talmud says, the Talmud tells us, Nidarem siyag laprishus, that Nidarem vows, it's a it's siyag, this is what helps us to become precious, to be separated from worldly things. A person has a hard, tough time, it's hard to be able to deal with temptations and all the like. So you take upon yourself a vow, it helps you be strong. You say, this is forbidden, I'm not going to do this, I'm never going to touch meat again. I'm not drinking wine, I'm not doing that. So you disassociate. So the Gemara says it's a good thing, because it brings you to what's called precious. It brings you to be a refined, elevated human being. But then the, the Jerusalem Talmud tells us the opposite. That a, person, that a person who makes a vow is looked upon very unfavorable. Why? You don't have enough prohibitions in the Torah. You have to add more prohibitions. The Torah gave us 365 prohibitions. There's enough things that you can't eat, you can't do, because the Torah says no, no, no. You're not satisfied with all the no's the Torah gave you. You have to add another no, another thing that you're not dropping. Enough prohibitions. Don't do that. So which one is it? Good or bad? So the Hasidic masters explain it as follows. And they say both are true. Both are true. What does that mean? It depends where you're holding. If you're still very weak, if your spiritual side is still very, very weak, and you're very, very influenceable from the outside world, you got to separate yourself from the Gashmias. Because if you take and use the material, physical things of the world, they can ensnare you, they can drag you in, you can become so, you can fall into such addictions. You know, a person that's weak can become an addict. So be very careful with the physical world, because if you're not careful with it, one can become a glutton and a completely obsessed with the material and lose all sense of spirituality, holiness, purpose, and mission in life. So you be careful. You can drown in the material. So that's why what, what should a person do? Take upon himself a vow. However, the ultimate, the um, objective is that we shouldn't keep the vow. Meaning we should make the vow, and the vow helps us through our immature spiritual state. But eventually, 
a person has to reach a point where they can annul the vows, meaning they don't have to run away from the material, physical things in the world. Instead, they should use them, but use them appropriately, according to how Hashem wants it to be used. Use the very physical things in this world to serve Hashem. So yes, eat, but eat the right way. Yes, um, you know, dress, dress the right way. Yes, have wealth, use the wealth in accordance to do good things in the world. So again, all these things should be used. So it depends where you're holding. But here is the greatness. But if you take a look at the story, if you look at the way the Torah presents to us the mitzvah of vows, the Torah obviously gives us a mitzvah of vows, so we're dealing with people who still need caution, precaution. People that are not free. Now obviously we're not dealing with very highly spiritual people that, have, that are very self-disciplined and can take care. We're dealing with people that need the help of a vow. Yet, what does the parsha say? The father comes, the brother comes. Father and brother represent spiritual forces. The girl, the Torah is the whole time talking about this woman, the woman who makes a vow. Who's the woman? A neshama is a woman. Every neshama is a girl. Because neshama is a, re, is a recipient from God. So neshama is a girl. So a weak neshama that cannot deal with the world yet makes upon themselves various vows, which means various barriers to separate between them and the world around them, not to become ensnared by the Gashmias. Comes this week, what, what does the Torah say? The purpose, most of the psukim, only the first pasuk says you should not annul your vow. Meaning, keep, keep to your word. All the rest of the psukim are giving all kinds of ways in which the vow can be annulled. Which you see that the purpose over here is not the vow, but the annulment of the vow. Which means, that very same person who needs the, ba- the vow is given empowerment to actually deal with the world. Not to run away from it. Deal with it. Take the dark substances of the world around you. Don't escape them. Run away from them. Be strong, be firm, have the ability to go use them, but use them according to what God wants, elevate them, transform them, take darkness and transform it to light. The entire theme of Parshas, of Parshas Nedarim is Hafaras Nedarim. Hafaras Nedarim means don't escape the world, learn how to master it and convert it. Well, that's what we're speaking about now. That's the whole idea of becoming a stick. Become strong. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be someone who can be pushed around and shoved around and bullied around by everybody. Don't let the material, physical, unholy things of society, of the world around you, bully you around. But to the point that you have to escape from it. Don't escape. Stand strong and firm. Use the world for proper things. What's the next part? The next parsha deals with, as we said earlier, the war against Midian. Do you know how many psukim are there about the war of, against Midian? Maybe five verses. Five, six verses. The rest of the whole story is not about Midian, about the war against Midian. It's about taking the utensils of Midian, bringing it to the Jewish camp, and making these non-kosher Jewish, these non-kosher Midianite pots and pans, making them kosher so that Jews can use them in their service to God. So the main, and more than that, some of those spoils went to the Beis Amigdash and became part of the service in the temple. Which stuff that were once used for the idols and for the, who knows, for the garbage that, was, that the Midianites, who were considered a very, very dark people, 
Their very utensils are converted into holiness. It's teaching you how to kasher, and how to toivel, and how to do everything. But the whole point is converting something dark into light, bitterness into sweetness. And here's the last story. The B'nai God and the B'nai Ruvain, the two sons, wanted to be shepherds. And they wanted to stay on the other side of the Midbar. And the reason they wanted to was because they were very spiritual people and they did not want to deal with the world. They wanted to remain on the other side of the, of the Yardin because they had a lot of grazing fields. What's so good about grazing? When you're a shepherd, you re- and you, especially if you don't have a, 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 a smartphone, so you're alone in the wilderness, all you have is a flute. It's very conducive to spiritual meditation. It's very conducive to hire, to develop yourself in a very spiritual way. And Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry at them. And you know what Moshe says? Your brothers are going to go, are going to, go to war, which means your brothers are going to go battle the demons of the world. And you're going to sit back in your shepherding fields and be, uh, these, and be, and be, and, and be spiritual when everybody else has to go do the main objective of this world to convert the dark forces of the world to positive things. And you're going to stay back. And what do the people do in the end? They promise Moshe that they're going to join in the battle. That means these very people who wanted to shy away from the battle are now joining the battle, which means, the, and what's the objective? To take the land of the seven nations and turn them into Eretz Yisrael, into a holy land. It's also the last few psukim, literally, in the parsha. the last few psukim, talk about how the B'nai God and the B'nai Ruvain, the sons of God and Ruvain, went and built up the cities of Sichon and Og. They rebuilt those cities. And mainly they changed their names. Those cities themselves that were once the land Sichon, and they were named after their idols, now they became new Jewish names. So the theme of the end of Parshas Matos, again, what's the theme? The conversion of the unholy to the holy. The taking the bitter and making it sweet. The almond. The entire Parshas Matos is a story of an almond. A bitter little fruit that eventually grows in 21 days and it becomes sweet. To us, what does that mean? We're now in the period of the three weeks. We have to realize, now we have open eyes. We didn't have this throughout the entire exile. We always concentrated on the darkness until Hasidus came to the world and told us, let's look deeper, let's find a deeper meaning. Today's days, our objective during these three weeks needs to be one thing, converting everything bitter into, the, into, into sweetness. So I think this, we were to look for a personal uh, work, each and every one of us can find that work. If, you find, you find, if, if we only bear this in our mind, keep this consciousness in our mind. This is a time of converting bitterness into sweetness. If you find yourself in a negative situation, sometime over the next tomorrow, the day after, next week, and so forth, you find yourself in a negative situation, concentrate that this negativity is only here for me to bust it and, re, and spin it around and turn it into positive. We have the power. In general, what we're supposed to do during these three weeks is to learn the Torah about building the Beis HaMikdash. Because then we're taking the, the three weeks of destruction and focusing on building, not on destruction. But, I'm not, but it's not only in regards to Beis HaMikdash. It's into all negativity. Where you feel a little Yetzirah, a little extra energy in you that wants to do something bad. Have the idea in your head, these are three weeks of conversion. Let me not get rid of that energy. Let me just 
redirect that energy. Let me see, is there any mitzvah that I wanted to do, that I wanted, that I, that I had in my mind, that I never got done, I was tired, I didn't have the energy. Well, guess what? I have a whole bunch of energy now. You know why? My Yitzhahara just boiled me up with a bunch of desire to go do something bad. Let me take that fresh energy that I have now to do something bad and direct it to do that good thing that I was lazy to do till now. I have this extra energy now. The superfluous, I can use it for good. Everybody can come up with in their own imagination of how you can take negative things in your mind or every action, every thought, speech, and action that we do to look for the, 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 the ability, the transformation. That's what it is. To take in, in personal relationships that we have, we find ourselves sometimes in a, bitter, in a bitterness with someone else. How can I take that very, very situation switch it around to friendship, to love, to happiness. Sometimes all it takes is just that mindfulness that I, that I have the ability to take this encounter, this, this thing that I've had, I got angry at someone in, in, at work or someone like that, and now and they're upset. How can we take that to increase friendship, to increase love, to increase happiness, and, and in everything, that's our attitude. And when we will do that, very soon, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the class, we are already seeing the Yahafchu, the transformation. It happened, it is happening already. It's happening already on the Harabayas already. That it's becoming a place for Jewish prayer for the third base of English. May we merit to see it now. <laughs> My Ich mache dich wie Goyna, 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 ich mache dich wie